You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, I trust your weekend has been fine. Now, Giles, my weekend has been uh, fine and that's partly because the weather's been fine. Uh, We've got a great guest this week, but uh, I can't... uh, uh, and a, a great conversation that touches on a lot of technology things besides just electricity, which I think is very exciting for the future of Australia. Uh, but before we get to that, I think it, I can't let this opening marks pass without drawing attention to the fact that uh, Labor's uh, climate change bill has been, I uh, understand, in draft form and ready to go to, 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 to Parliament. But you know, the question is whether the target is uh, particularly ambitious or whether it even has much meaning without having enough policy to go with it. And I guess we haven't really seen the details as we discussed on our uh, interview with Chris Bowen about how the actual uh, emissions reduction, the safeguards uh, scheme will be tightened up and reduced each year. And I guess that, that that's a big thing, but it, it's probably not enough by itself. No, look, um, and we certainly saw um, um, the ANU people, Andrew, led by Andrew McIntosh, come up with some um, renewed criticism of the uh, carbon offset scheme, and that has also led Chris Bowen has asked for the resignation of three appointees, um, co- coalition appointees, to the oversight committee, including a couple of very notable people who be um, energy people, market people, be very familiar with that David Byers. Um, and Brian Fisher, of course, who's made quite a name for himself with some interesting modelling, particularly of the coalitions and Labor's policies in the past. Um, it's interesting with Labor's position at the moment. Um, Anthony Albanese came to power saying he wanted the climate wars to be over, but in the past week he's been laying into the Greens for their refusal of the CPRS um, more than a decade ago. doesn't seem particularly helpful um, at the moment and um, it's confused and frustrated a lot of people. It's going to be interesting to see what the Greens decide um, in the coming weeks. Um, I think they're having a bit of a retreat over over the next week. Looking at their strategy when Parliament resumes at the end of the month, um, Labor coming there with the 43% um, reduction target, as you say, um, which everyone understands is nowhere near um, sufficient for a 1.5 degree target. And the Greens are going to have to look at their strategy about whether they support that and um, and say, yes, we're supporting it, but we want more, um, or, or, or whether they reject it out of hand. So um, that's particularly interesting. And I guess another thing before we um, turn to our guest today, um, David, is um, the uh, Energy Next Conference and the Clean Energy Council Summit on in Sydney this week. So that'll be a very important get together um, for the industry for the first time in a decade without a federal coalition government. So it's going to be very interesting to see um, how the mood has changed. Uh, indeed. And look, really, it's towards the end of this year that things get going, that the New South Wales uh, first batch of uh, LTESA tenders are conducted and, and we start to get onto this program. I think the key thing about the ISP is that it requires a doubling pretty much or a little more than doubling two to three times as much uh, large scale wind and solar to be installed each year. But look, you know, what, what, what the federal, what isn't happening is being done by business and uh, maybe uh, we should shortly get, get to our interview, which is uh, I, I found particularly interesting. Yes, and our guest um, this week is David Skaysbrook. He is um, one of the founders and managing partners of Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. Now, Quinbrook is not a company we get to hear a lot of, but they've been extraordinarily busy, mostly overseas, in the um, past five years. Uh, They raised a lot of money in 2015, as you're about to hear. And I just want to run through some of their projects that um, they're talking about, just as it'll give a bit of context, because we mentioned them a little bit in an ad hoc way without sort of fully giving the context. Um, They announced last week plans for a um, huge battery um, called the Supernode Battery in Queensland, 800 megawatts and 2,000 megawatt hours, um, would be the largest of its type in Australia, although there's a few competing for that title at the moment, and I guess we'll see when they get built, but built around 
um, data centers and just that sort of, you know, creating that huge load in the big data center complex in Queensland and, and having a battery to support that and manage that. Um, they've got another Lockyer project, which was um, once a gas project, which never quite got the money from Ungi, as um, Angus Taylor would have promised, and is now largely a battery project of about 800 megawatt hours. Um, there's also the Gemini project that they've done in the US, which is 690 megawatts of solar plus 390 megawatts of battery with four hours storage. Um, and there's a fair few other projects, similar ones. And they just last week won a big contract with the UK government for something called Project Fortress, which we'll also hear about in the interview, which is a 300 and something me uh, megawatt solar project in the south of England with batteries as well. And it won a position in the last round of um, auctions held by the UK government. So that's David Scaysbrook from Quinbook Infrastructure Partners. Um, we're just going to take a short break, break and we'll be back with David straight afterwards. JetCharge is the largest EV charging infrastructure company in Australia. Operating nationwide, JetCharge has spent the last decade providing hassle-free EV charging services to thousands of businesses and EV drivers. JetCharge also specialises in helping maximise your use of renewable energy and are the leaders in vehicle-to-grid integrated solutions. From home charger installations to the largest EV charging projects in Australia, JetCharge is paving the way for an electric future together. David Skaysbrook, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. You're very welcome. Good morning. Um, there's lots of really in interesting investments that Quinbrook um, has got both in Australia, in the UK and the US. A lot of them focused around solar and storage. But let's just start off with the political environment. Um, Quinbrook historically has focused most of its investments in overseas markets. You're now looking to invest more in Australia. Why is that? Well, I think for many years, we've had a very high degree of genuine apathy at a federal level uh, in, in driving things forward. And we we were concerned over the years about two things, you know, the inflated wholesale electricity prices uh, in Australia, given that we saw the trend in cost uh, in, in some of the investments, particularly we were making in solar and storage in the US. And and we felt that those, you know, wholesale price levels in Australia were were unsustainable. So the market fundamentals really weren't all that attractive to us. And, and secondly, we uh, were concerned about the level of uh, degree of government, both participation in and 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 uh, sort of influence over policy that drives you know price outcomes in the market, and for that reason, you know we you know as allocators of capital, there's just a more conducive environment for us in the UK uh, and the United States. However, after the most recent federal election, you know we have more confidence that. There's a genuine pro-investment policy for this federal government and that, you know, we've already started to see a genuine desire to implement reform uh, and take up some of the recommendations of the ESB. You know, we said uh, after the, the election briefing that we had that mo a lot of the work had been done in terms of fixing some of the problems that we, that we saw in the fundamental market design of the NEM. Uh, but we didn't see really any action to take up any of those recommendations or implement them in any serious way. And there was also really a lack of of consensus amongst the states and, and the federal energy minister, as we know. And we just felt it was sort of an intractable position. Now, all of a sudden, only months after the election, we're seeing recommendations like the capacity market mechanism starting to move forward with genuine consensus for the first time. I'd like to get onto the capacity market and some of the other things um, very soon. I don't want to dwell too much time on the former government, but um, I'd just like to ask this question because you were one of the shortlisted projects for the UNGI thing, the um, Underwriting New Generation Investments, mm. um, one of the favoured projects I think you actually said at a briefing um, a couple of months ago. Um, that was for a gas um, facility in Queensland. What happened to that? Why didn't that go forward? Well, really the the... The negotiations, you know, the the detail versus the 
the the intent of the UNGI uh, program when it was announced was really to provide support financially for projects that otherwise are not supported by the market fundamentals. And, you know, we've had at the time a situation where the pricing of volatility as reflected in the pricing of caps for price protection, you know, high price protection in the wholesale market had collapsed uh, to levels that wouldn't sustain, say, investment in peaking generation. And we had one of the only, and I think we've been told the only, a fully permitted and approved uh, gas peaking plant on the eastern seaboard. And so our project was sort of first cab off the rank, um, or certainly one of a batch of two or three, but we'd been chosen to negotiate first with the team. Uh, and really what we we just were put through a very, very protracted change of personnel, change in position on fundamental commercial points where we were going very rapidly away from the fundamental intent of the policy to a point where really from an equity investor's point of view, the proposition of supporting an investment you know, in in those circumstances where market fundamentals weren't there, that got completely lost. And, you know, we were looking at the amount of time and effort that we'd have to spend and what we saw as a significant departure from the intended objectives of UNGI. And, you know, we essentially gave up on the process. Was that just like political interference, you think, or just sort of bad um, bureaucracy? I just, I just, there were many, many fingers in the pie. We had to keep dealing with changes in personnel. Uh, on their side, we had to sort of go back to square one three times. And every time we had to try to pick up the intent of the former negotiations. And it just became just too much time and effort, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I, my last question before handing over David to a go for, for a go now. Now, that, that gas project, which, um, you know, was, was, was sort of basically um, planning approval, was sort of project ready if the market fundamentals were right, has now been morphed into what is largely a battery storage project with a bit of gas um, in the background. Can you tell us why that is and what's changed with the technologies that sort of thrust um, battery storage forward in such a way and I, I, I guess from there we could probably go into discuss some of your other projects because they've all featured battery storage very strongly yeah they do look I, I think we uh, in the last 24 months maybe 36 months there's been an extraordinary leap forward in the battery technology and capability uh, and until the recent supply chain impacts you know batteries were really really competitive on cost um and that's really with gas at historically much lower levels at at um sort of wallambilla up here in queensland than what we're seeing today and so you had this trade-off between you know the capital cost of the battery the capital cost of the gas turbine the variable price of fuel and then what we saw as the sort of emerging arbitrage or the spark spread in the power market and the ability to provide fast start. And that was really the issue that we saw was lacking. You know, a couple of years ago, we looked at the response time of the existing speakers in the market, very slow, not very nimble, very old technology, very inefficient technology. And the aeroderivative gas turbine technology that's available today is so fast and so efficient that Queensland, particularly Southeast Queensland, didn't have any of that technology. There was never really a reason to build it. But as we were seeing volatility increase, the amount of renewables, intermittent weather-dependent renewables, the need for fast response in a gas turbine became just so obvious to us. And that was the original appeal of Lockyer. I mean, it literally sits on the Roman to Brisbane gas pipeline across the road from an Energex substation. So locationally, it's pretty special. Then um, as the market started to change and sort of battery economics were changing, the, the Lockyer project was always intended to be a staged project. It's something that up to a thousand megawatts can grow with the needs of the market over time. And that was one of the attractions for us because it can also connect into the PowerLink high voltage transmission system. And so what we really thought uh, rather than pursuing the original thesis that uh, that had been eight years in the planning, to be honest, for Lockyer to get planning approval, it's an extraordinary amount of time, but it got 
approval for a thousand megawatts of gas turbines, which you know is probably unrepeatable um, today. But at the same time, we wanted to maximise the flexibility, depending on where the variable economics of gas price, gas turbines, battery pricing. And so we went back and we changed the planning conditions to enable any mix of batteries and gas turbines within that 1000 megawatt envelope. And, and we think that was, was the right thing to do, um, given that this potentially has capacity to be built out over the next sort of five to six years. A lot is going to happen in the relative economics. So we really wanted to do a couple of things. Firstly, choose a, choose a gas turbine technology that was hydrogen um, capable. Um, and we've done that um, with the GE technology we've chosen, but only commit to an initial 130 odd megawatts um, of capacity to start with, just to give Southeast Queensland that fast start capability. And secondly, then to look at uh, procurement of a battery system in the sort of 20, 24, 25 timeframe. And then give maximum flexibility in the mix between the two. And, you know, I think we, as things, and this was before the recent volatility. And, you know, I think, re you know, more recently, we've had a huge amount of interest in, in Lockyer uh, in the wake of what we've seen, particularly in Queensland and the, and the NEM. And so I think it is well positioned now and it doesn't need UNGI, quite frankly. It, it won't need UNGI going forward to be viable. Um. David, I, I want to come, we'll obviously come back to this, but I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about Quinbrook itself to start mm. with. Mm -hmm. Not so much the history, but I guess the uh, business model. Um, Quinbrook doesn't, um, could you just talk a little bit about where you get your, uh, I mean, you, you don't, you want to manage assets. So it's, yeah. it's a develop and, uh, and then sell to someone type of strategy is, and keep the management. Yeah, it's well. It's a bit of a combination. We're probably both a private equity firm and an infrastructure, long-term infrastructure firm. We have both types of funds. We our biomass assets in the Northern Rivers in New South Wales are held in a very long-term, twenty-year-plus investment structure for UK pension funds. Uh, our other funds are a sort of ten to twelve-year duration, but they are designed to eventually exit. Uh, the assets or the businesses that that we invest in, um, and that, and that's fairly typical. Ten to twelve year private capital fund uh, is fairly typical outside Australia. Here we tend to have longer duration, open ended funds for the Australian supers uh, are more comfortable with that or more used to that. Uh, but the business model, yeah, is essentially to develop and create new energy infrastructure assets in the in the in the renewables storage grid support space de-risk those assets through the permitting construction and operations phase uh, and then eventually after we've established the operational track record we will sell those to you know whoever the appropriate buyer audience is at the time and then the other thing we do is we build businesses like we're doing here in australia with our energy locals and our energy trade franchises we're actually building teams and businesses who then manage a portfolio of assets and we are the sole shareholder is that hopefully that's a good explanation of what we're up to here uh, it is and it reminds i think both of the found you got you and your co-founder were ex-hastings and and so i think that's where the background maybe comes from could you just tell me a little bit about the uh, evolution like five years ago mm -hmm. how much were you actually managing in total across all the funds as compared to how much in in billions of dollars you're actually mm. managing now yeah, well we started we started as fund managers you know in 2010 after i sold my company called novera to a private equity firm which has sort of planted the seed uh and we went and figured out what private equity was all about and the reason for becoming fund managers in the first place was that we we didn't really see across the landscape of private capital managers we didn't see anybody who had our experience in development and and construction of renewables assets and so that was a sort of a glaring opportunity for us to develop a platform in value add uh, in in renewables in particular and so we we started um, 
we had a small, a very brief stint with Hastings, and then we started the clean energy business at Capital Dynamics, which is a Swiss private equity firm. And that went from 2010 to 2015, and we did was it sort of an entree into solar. Back then, we did one of the first institutional funds for solar energy in the US market, and then sort of evolved across uh, four funds that we did there, um, just over a billion US dollars across those strategies of equity. Obviously, debt and other things are on top of that. Uh, and one of those four funds was our our biomass acquisition here in the Northern Rivers that we've renamed Cape Byron Power. We, we started Quinbrook in 2015, so we're coming up to our seventh anniversary this year. And our, our first fund, if you like, was that biomass fund, which we, we did a management buyout from Capital Dynamics and we took that fund with us. That was pretty small at the time. It was only 100 million Australian dollars, but that was the genesis of Quinbrook in 2015. We then launched our low carbon power fund. Um, and to show you how quickly things have, have grown and changed in this landscape, you know, we raised about 1.6 billion of total commitments for that fund in 2019, we had our final close. So that was our, if you like, our flagship fund under the Quinbrook umbrella. That was, I think, the third largest renewables fund in the world at the time. And that was our first fund as Quinbrook. So we we're pretty feeling pretty happy with ourselves then. But, you know, now 1.6 billion two years later or three years later is, is pretty small <laughs> in the scheme of things. Um, but that shows you how quickly the, the landscape has, has evolved. Uh, we then uh, have launched our Renewables Impact Fund, which is a UK-only uh, fund, um, which is really caters for sterling-denominated UK pension funds in particular. And then our the fund we're investing out of now is our Net Zero Power Fund, um, and it's a $2 billion target fund uh, with an additional uh, billion of, of co-investment capital. So it'll be at least the three billion US dollar capital pool that we're investing out of, uh, and there are others in the works, of course. But you know that takes our total funds under management to about five billion. That's uh, a, a very good achievement in a, in a in a short space of time, in in my opinion. And I um, I'll hand back to Giles in a minute, or like. But I, w- I wanted to ask you a little bit about. I think your biggest project, or must be one of them, is the. Uh, Gemini project in the mm. USA. Could you just, uh, which I think recently completed a cl- uh, an over US one billion dollar uh, mm. uh, financing round. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about that project and who who owns the equity? Mm. Uh, uh, you know, and, and and what's going on there? Yeah, certainly. Well, look, I mean, I think it's a good it is a good case study in sort of demonstrating our developer DNA because we are developers at heart you know that opportunity came to us as the, the as a concept in in april of 2017 it's a good story because it, it was it was originally developed by bright source energy which was the solar thermal power tower um, business that went bankrupt in the us and they were planning to do a you know one of those very high rise solar towers solar thermal towers just outside las vegas but they had done a deal with the BLM, which is the Federal Bureau of Land Management, and had grandfathered, you know, quite a lot of land near Las Vegas for this project. Anyway, we were offered the opportunity to buy basically the concept and the the status of negotiations with the BLM. For us, it was, you know, immediately attractive. I think it took Rory and I 24 hours to buy the to decide to buy the project. That's how appealing it was to us. But it was, you know, all the work was in front of us. So, um, but at a, we, I think we acquired the whole thing for a million, just over a million dollars. And then we set about our, our work. The thing that was, there were several things that were so appealing to us. One, this was 44,000 acres, which is a huge amount of land. It was right near Las Vegas, which would has has a, and increasingly will have a very significant power demand. Uh, David, sorry, sorry to yep. interrupt. Just, just, just for the yep. listeners, I, I probably should have said it. Could you just tell me exactly what it, it's? I think six hundred megawatts of uh, AC solar and, yes. and a four-hour yeah. battery. Is, sorry, I just wanted yeah. to. Uh, yeah, it's, get... it's the, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to put it in context. It's six hundred ninety megawatts of solar PV. 
and and just under 1400 megawatt hours in a four hour duration uh, battery so it was the first one of the first large scale combinations of solar and storage to be to be conceived in the US market and and that was what NV Energy which was the utility in Nevada that's what they wanted they wanted the a 4 hour duration battery to be able to be charged the, the solar project to be oversized to charge the battery during the daily peak and then to have the, a 4 hour discharge you know when the sun goes down basically um, through to the early evening peak to nine o'clock at night so it does a simple duty it's a single single full full charge discharge one cycle per day is this is the sort of the standard base case the investment attraction of that for us was was it's a 25 year arrangement so it's a it's a great infrastructure investment for 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 our investors but the hurdles that we had to overcome were the, the planning, you know, getting through the permitting, the environmental and, and wildlife permitting, and of course the interconnection process and then negotiating a power purchase agreement with NV Energy. So it took us, um, and I'll get to the more recently the procurement, but it took us nearly four years to get through all of that uh, process, but we managed to secure the PPA in, in uh, June of 2019. So it gave us a lot of confidence to finish off um, the rest of it fortunately we we didn't do again sort of reflecting our developer dna we didn't do an epc wrap we did a design and construct and we did all the procurement of the individual components ourselves and had we not done that we would have been actually hurt by this what's gone on in pricing in modules and 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 battery storage components because we had we achieved extraordinary pricing on all of the equipment, but because we did our purchasing literally over a year ago, um, so you know the prices we got for Gemini were unrepeatable in in the in the current market. And David, are you able to talk a little bit about the uh, price in the PPA that 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 you will be receiving? Yeah, the price the price is public. Actually, it's a it's a feature of of the Nevada. Uh, procurement arrangements that you know you can discover the PPA on the public record if you're pretty good at, it, at Google searching. So, you know, it works out that we get a, a base rate um, for the power of about 26 US dollars a megawatt hour, uh, and then during the summer peak, um, where the battery is called it, it's in its it's a prime uh, time, so it, it it is required to be available for three months of the year for that peak period. That's when in the summer peak in the afternoons is when it's called a super requirements period. We get a six times multiple of the base rate for those three months. That's the primary revenue stream for the battery. And the primary revenue stream for the solar PV is, is that $26 a megawatt hour. So when you blend them together on a, on a sort of a load weighted basis, you're in the sort of sort of $44 a megawatt hour. Uh, US, which which maybe US. 60 Aussie, which is I, I sort of in think. In that range, yeah. And I reckon if you were doing it today, you, you uh, in the current conditions, you might be, what, 20% higher or something, 10, 10 to 20% higher? Yeah, at least 20. I mean, if, if we're looking at, um it's huge variability at the moment in solar module pricing if you're buying something for the next 12 months versus the next 36 months so you know depending on when you need your modules over the next three years the pricing varies very significantly but if it was today your modules are costing you at least 30 percent more than what we were able to procure for gemini and on the battery side of things, it's higher. It's it's more than forty percent higher at the moment. If you need batteries right now, in the next twelve months, so this is a particularly difficult and expensive period in the U.S. Not so not so everywhere else, but because of the duty issues and everything that we've had in the U.S., it's a particularly expensive time to be procuring modules and batteries. But that will get better, and it will ease later into next year and and going forward it's sort of projected to start returning towards where it was i think it will but i think ago. we're going to get permanently higher uh um demand you know uh, uh yes. at least when i say permanently higher at least while europe's uh gets a gets a real hurry on 
um, that's going to be you know a lot of interest there. Uh, David, I I'll just quickly, uh, it's such an interesting set of assets that you've got. And it, but uh, could you just talk a little bit about data centres because that's really what uh, mm. Supernode is actually building in Australia. And I had a friend at Google. Uh, I, I had a friend <laughs> who once said he wouldn't want to do data centres in Australia because of the. Um, uh, federal government's um, uh, what do you call it? You know, security requirements, uh, metadata. Mm. Um, mm. But is Australia? Firstly, I think data centres probably could end up being as as big as say aluminium in terms of electricity. Mm. They're already over one or two percent of global electricity consumption globally, and and they could be a big thing in Australia as well. And do you, do you think Australia and particularly Queensland, where it's hot mm. and you need more cooling, is is a good place to be doing data centres? Well, I think, you know, let, let's go back to the, the fundamentals. I mean, firstly, if you take data centres as a customer grouping, they are the largest corporate buyers of renewable energy on the planet right now. And so, therefore, it's not a particularly stretch of genius for us to want to focus on them as a customer group, given how energy intensive they are. And, you know, the, their demands for electricity are a function of society's use of data and and with and post COVID and even through COVID, that's gone through the roof. And whilst data centres are getting more energy efficient, I will say that it's the it's the hyperscale data centre operators, particularly Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they're the ones driving new benchmarks in decarbonisation of their of of their operations. It's they are the ones out there experimenting with new backup power solutions with 24-7 tracing of the renewable power with their net zero targets and so on. It's a big, big, big challenge, but they are right in the vanguard of driving change in how energy-intensive industry procures electricity. So, so, you know, in the US, that's where we started our data center focus. But then through a um, bit of serendipity, it occurred to us that Queensland isn't wasn't in directly connected to the outside world through any data submarine cables until the cable was landed at Maruchidor and it was curious to us why why did anyone bother to do that and particularly from the Guam cable to Maruchidor now the ambition of that <laughs> a lot of funny time, things happen in Queensland sorry sorry to do. interrupt <laughs> they do well you know this is this is a, this is a great serendipity story because the original idea was just to make Maruchidor a smart city and, and that was an initiative of the Maruchi Council. And then we sort of saw it as ending in a cul-de-sac, but that, you know, really, what, why not bring it to Brisbane and connect Brisbane directly to the outside world? And given all of the renewables in Queensland, um, you know, we had this unique location at South Pine where, you know, fortunately, we were able to procure all the land around it. just became too good to be true at the end of it. And, and really, from a renewables powering perspective, um, it doesn't get any better than, than you know, building an energy-intensive data center in this particular location that can be powered with renewables. But there's more to it than that because, you know, the efficiency of, of brand-new design in data centers, it's improving year on year. And the, the, the efficiency of the data centers that will be built at Supernote will be significantly better than even the existing data center stock in, in Sydney and Melbourne. And so we are able to take advantage and, and the operators who will build there take advantage of significant leaps and advances in the PUE, which is the way they measure the, the energy efficiency of their data centers. The second, the second thing that's fundamentally attractive to, to all, of, all of the electricity power system in Queensland is that the demand that's created at South Pine from the data center load will help stabilize the Queensland power system. And that was one of the things that were identified by AEMO. We've got so much rooftop solar being continually installed that our net grid demand during a really high peak solar day is getting down to dangerous levels where the, where the grid's actually becoming unstable. By being able to put a new load at that location, it's the most efficient place to put it. And it will provide a systemic benefit to the whole to the stability of the grid. So that that was something that was also on our mind. And, and data center data center loads um, they they um, occur. I would have thought they would tend to 
peak in the evening is, or around peak time, but, but that, that it's a reasonably flat load curve, is it? And it is. I guess the data transmission is also is. nearly as big as the data centre itself. Yeah, so the, the load is typically flat, right? Unless you have, uh, you can have some high performance computing applications, which, you know, we've, we've seen, ex we've had expressions of interest for batch computing, which is interruptible. Uh, but the the bulk of the the typical more latent data center operations are twenty four seven. So that's that'll create a base load of demand at South Pine, and then depending on the profile of, of the customers that go in there, you know, I would expect the profile to remain, you know, pretty flat. Um, in terms of the data transmission, you know, we depending on you know what your time horizon is. You know, we'll be transmitting immediately through the Taurus cable, through Maroochydore to Guam, and then on to the rest of, of the US and the Pacific. Uh, it will also be able to connect and provide secondary backup from Brisbane to Sydney. And we'd expect the Hyper One cable that's been mooted from Darwin. Uh, its track is straight into Brisbane, into, into where we are. So it will have this extraordinary situation where we'll not only have backup to the rest of the eastern seaboard but we'll be able to connect to darwin and to guam and so from a data security backup perspective and the power resiliency that we have by being located at south pine it's a pretty extraordinary situation and, and i think as as sort of power guys and girls that are learning data <laughs> um, the biggest uh, satisfaction for us has been the endorsement that we've had so on the on the heels of the announcement of supernode the endorsement we're getting from the biggest data companies in the world that, that want to look at it and and I think we've really opened up a brand new territory I'm fascinated David by uh, some of these projects uh, supernode of course is um, 800 megawatt 2000 megawatt hour project so it, mm. it, it is actually mm. quite sort of huge it's it fascinating is. that you, um, how solar and storage has has come to the fore and that seems to be the main thrust of your investments at the mm. moment and it's interesting to see how solar PV and storage is now sort of beating those sort of dreams of solar thermal and storage in the US that solar mm. and storage is making a um, uh, a place in the UK and and now mm. obviously in Australia. You don't seem to be attracted by wind or any of the other technologies. Well, we we built one of the biggest wind companies in America, and we're in the process of selling it. And I think um, wind wind has a very important role to play as we create shape, you know, with our customers. But uh, it's something that we can farm in. We don't need to develop it ourselves. Our, our view is that solar and storage is the anchor technology combination for the energy transition. And and given that we had such a head start on it with our Gemini project in Nevada, and we've developed significant expertise around it, um, in, in markets, particularly with high solar radiation, I'll come back to the project in Kent when I say that in a minute, um, but you know, particularly here in Queensland and Texas and, and Arizona and Phoenix and California and Nevada and these other markets where we are strong, it's, there's nothing can beat it. Uh, and so to be anchoring our customer-driven strategies with solar and storage is just logical because it's producing the cheapest renewable power during the day when their, their industry needs it and into the early evening. And our view is that, that power in the early evening peak, sorry, I should say the cost of power in the evening peak will be the most expensive power we will see in the future. And, and time shifting of solar is one of the best solutions for that. So when we were putting all the pieces together, we said, you know, we're, we need to become truly expert in this, this combo. And as we get better, longer duration energy storage options paired with solar, it's going to keep getting better and better. And so that's strategically, that's where we wanted to put our eggs, if you like, in that in that basket. Doesn't mean we don't do other other development. You know, we've got other synchronous condensers, we've got biomass, you know, we've got wind at the moment. But but I think we just wanted to really put a marker down on on solar and storage.
I'm just wondering too, um, I'm interested in finding out about Kent, but first of all, you mentioned capacity markets at the start of the um, at the start of this interview, and there's a big debate now about that in Australia. Um, you're in an interesting position because you straddle both the sort of, you know, the, um, the, the gas peaker and the battery storage um, development. So how are you seeing this? I mean, the, the, we've had debates with uh, Chris Bowen um, a couple of weeks ago and with others. Are you happy with what the ESB has proposed per se, or are you in that camp that wants it to be very much focused on flexibility and the new technologies? And if the problem that they're worried about is the exit of coal, then there's other ways to manage that rather than sort of polluting, if that's the right word, a, a new capacity market mechanism by, by, by thinking about baseload coal. Well, you know, again, it's, it's, um, uh, it's how you, it's how they, it's how the government determines eligibility to participate in the capacity market. I mean, you don't have to make coal plants eligible, right? Now, the the way it, it's always fascinated me that 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 we don't take more lessons from the UK, <laughs> you know, that that we don't keep trying to reinvent the wheel in Australia. I mean, the Australian power system was modelled on the UK power pool, and and still works that way today with this, you know, the economists had their day and we have this marginal megawatt that determines price formation across the entire market. The context in which we see capacity contracts or capacity support for things like intermittent renewables is simply a fact that, that you want the power market to benefit from zero cost technologies that are driven by a natural fuel resource. And that's not the way historically our power markets have been designed, right? They've been designed around short run marginal cost of coal and gas at a certain heat rate. And, and so we just don't think that, that power markets are fit for purpose the way they're designed at the moment. And interestingly, to put capacity support contracts, whatever you want to call it, into its, their proper context, yet you, you've got to look at the, the effectiveness with that they've had in bringing new capacity into the UK power system and this and the emerging argument that you're seeing taken up by by the government of the day now in the UK that the cost of the consumer has been inflated by virtue of the design of the power market because it's now been priced to the to the short run marginal cost of gas and gas has gone through the roof so you've got a situation where renewables are getting a free rider off the back of high gas prices. They're now talking about creating a bifurcated market where renewables are supported in their entry into the market through a capacity mechanism. And then, if you like, the spot market really only becomes the peaking market where gas is needed until it's not needed any longer. And that the outcome of that will be you significantly reduce the impost of electricity costs across the market for all consumers. And I think this initiative is going to get a lot of traction in the UK. And I wouldn't be surprised if it starts to get traction here because we're suffering from the same problem. Because our, And why? Because we both have very high gas prices. The average Australian doesn't understand why our gas is priced to international levels and affected by what's going on in Ukraine. Um, but the reality is it's driving up Get, uh, electricity prices significantly on the eastern seaboard so the same problem they're trying to fix in the uk is the same problem that our politicians are grappling with here but get back to the value of a capacity contract it supports investment right in new capacity which is desperately needed in australia but it means that the market can benefit from having zero marginal cost from wind and solar and so we need to just be grown up about the deficiencies and the dysfunctionality of the way our current market design works. Now, it's going to take a long time to turn the whole thing on its head. What they've done in the UK, which is working, at least from forcing new or bringing new renewables into the market, they've got a bit of a Band-Aid system with their capacity market, but it is working in conjunction with their wholesale pool. I just argue that in Australia right now, at least, it's not just gas prices, but the actual coal prices, which are the bulk energy prices. Yes, yes. So wind and solar always get a bit of a free kick on the revenue, yes, but then yes. you always need yeah. a revenue. You can't, if you, 
I mean, like everyone needs to earn enough revenue to cover uh, not just their fuel cost, but their capital costs as well. So yes. the price has to has to settle above the short run marginal cost of the average fuel, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I mean, here here you're right, David. We have a double whammy. You know, the, the UK power system doesn't have a lot of coal anymore. Here we've got high coal prices, high gas prices, but in circumstances where they are setting the the system marginal price, that's being paid and or that revenue is being earned by all generators, and at levels that you know probably most new investors in renewables weren't expecting. Right, it's higher than what they were expecting to get. Now maybe some of that's been swapped out under CFDs, but at the end of the day, it's a near term, it's sort of it's a short term pricing aberration made possible by the input fuel costs as you mentioned and and you think long term can we live with that volatility i don't think we can and capacity market and capacity mechanisms are a way to provide long-term price certainty to bring intermittent technologies into the market at scale right and it's working to some degree as i said it ain't perfect but you know we've been prevaricating around this for over five years I just want, we've um, taken up a lot of your time. I do have one last question because you talked about solar and storage and how they work in markets with mm. great solar conditions and things like that. Um, that doesn't explain Kent, as you kind of alluded to beforehand, <laughs> where you just landed well, a very... <laughs> now, unless climate change is some, something, something which I'm not aware of already, perhaps you can ex explain yeah. how a very large solar farm and battery in Kent um, can possibly be a good idea. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I would... That's the first thing i asked when the team told me about it um when it sort of came onto our radar now i and surprisingly um and i would never have thought this in a month of sundays but surprisingly large-scale solar orientated at that particular location which is also the junction at which the uh, london array offshore wind farm uh meets meets landfall is is a feasible and quite reasonably priced option considering all other alternatives and and, and you got to remember the whole of the relative cost base of uk power is significantly higher than it is here in australia they have less alternatives um and and you have a situation where the cheapest form of of renewable power in the uk is offshore wind you know by a lot it's by by a significant margin and so you you rather than having and we'll we'll, we'll We'll get to see where offshore wind sits relative to solar in Australia, but it, but it'll be the reverse more than likely. Certain will be in a, in a place like Queensland, solar will always be the cheapest technology. But here you have offshore wind as the cheapest technology, but blowing largely in the hours where we have off peak, and then you have to complement it with solar during the daily the daily peak. From a system perspective, when you blend those two together. And actually having large scale solar backed up by offshore wind and battery storage is the lowest cost duration of renewable power you can get in the UK. Now, Kent is like like places in um, or southern England generally is about the only place it makes sense in our view to do it. But you'd be surprised to hear, not maybe you you would or would not be surprised to hear that in the Midlands they're talking about doing gigawatt scale solar and you know I, I for the life of me can't figure it out but but it sort of just makes sense in the southern parts of england at scale in these particular locations and i was i was surprised as anybody when we ran the numbers and figured out the holistic value of the project um and if we do start to see solar and storage starting to trend down in cost again you know is it's going to be, there's going to be more of it for sure in the UK. No, no, it's fascinating. Look, I, th I think we've probably taken up enough of your time and um, also our listeners. Um, David, it's actually been really interesting and and I think that they've probably got a half dozen questions each um, to go further, but um, we do have to go. Um, really appreciate your frank frankness and, um, and, and your insight and uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, thanks, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. And that was David Scaysbrook, Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. Um, David, fascinating. Um, um, one of the companies, as we said at the start, that's sort of um, flown under the um, um, sort of flown under the radar, but doing some very interesting things. Yes, that's the thing. They're getting on with it and getting on with it at a good speed. And I've long th been interested in data centres. 
uh, myself as a growth business. Uh, so I look forward to uh, follow, follow, following uh, uh, Quinbrook's progress. What do you make of the capacity market? I mean, you know, we've had a few discussions about the capacity market. I think everyone agrees that something is needed. Um, I, I guess what the ESB has presented um, has frustrated many people. Do you think they're going to have to go to the back to the drawing board um, at all, David? Giles, as I said several times, the capacity market is like about the last thing that you need, really. And uh, I, there's not much more we can say about it. Everyone's positions are very well known until we actually see the details of, of where it all lands. I think the Victorian government said that they're not going to have uh, uh, coal in it, and they seem very firm on that. Uh, we haven't heard a word from the Queensland government, of course, and I think as uh, uh, we also heard from Alan Rye, uh, you know what what's happening in Queensland, which is the the biggest owner of uh, coal generation in Australia. Uh, Queensland is very like uh, China in a way; it's it's big in coal, and it's also can be very big in renewables. And, you know, uh, uh, you can't take Australia's decarbonisation efforts seriously, really, uh, until we not just do stuff in electricity, but also uh, get the uh, export of coal and gold, uh, gas uh, sort of start to think about that and, and new projects. So there's a, there's a lot to go. The capacity market, as I said, is, is like the last piece. It's a typical sort of thing in that the federal government doesn't actually have to do anything. And uh, the state governments are actually running it and saying what they will and won't have. Uh, and, and and we just await the details. Until then, it's just a lot of hot air. Okay. David, I think we're going to end it there. Um, thank you very much once again for your participation in the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, thanks, of course, to David Scraysbrook from Quinbrook Invest Infrastructure Partners. Fascinating interview. Really interesting to see some of the projects that they're working on. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Jet Charge and our regular sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks for everyone listening out there. Do check out our other podcasts, the Solar Insiders podcast, the Great Solar Business podcast, and also the Driven podcast, which is focused on EVs. A couple of great new episodes coming up this week. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at the Clean Energy Summit this week and look forward to hearing back from you um, as usual. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost, and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.